to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Brilliant. Well, um, it's especially nice to be talking to the uh, new members of the 11.30 service. Because I like to think, you're, I mean, you're either the ones who've got teenagers, in which case, God bless you. Uh, or you're the ones, you know, a certain Sunday morning, I think I'm going to get up slowly, have coffee, listen to a little bit of, uh, you know, Easy Like Sunday Morning by, was it the Commodores? And... Uh, you read the papers, and there's a sort of certain looseness. Uh, so, welcome. Uh, it's been a mad morning for me uh, because uh, I suppose the 9.30 then went over to Woking and back again. So, um, by now, I've just about ironed out all the heresies, and you're in for an absolute treat. So, uh, it's traditional um, in the first service uh, or first sermon of a, of a new year for a, a pastor to really try and speak with some level of conviction about what he or she senses God might be saying to the church in the coming year. And Adam did a brilliant job uh, on that last week. Uh, but what I, I want to do is kind of the exact opposite of that today. Uh, I want to, instead of saying what I think God is telling us in 2024, I want to suggest what I think God may be asking us in 2024. And I warn you, this is going to be quite challenging. Is that okay? Are you up for this? Okay, great. So together we are going to address the two most important and most life-defining questions in life. We're going to turn together to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, the story of the fall. So uh, let's read this together now, shall we? Now the servant was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden. Uh, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you mustn't touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? In these famous verses, we hear three voices. The first is the voice of the serpent or Satan in verse 1. The second is the, verse, is the voice of Eve in verse 2. And the third is the voice of God in verse 9. And it's fascinating to me that whilst Eve merely speaks, both Satan and God ask questions. They lead with 
questions. And what chilling questions they are. Satan's, did God really say? And Satan's, uh, and God's, sorry, where are you? These two questions, did God really say and where are you, have echoed down the ages through every generation right up to this present moment in this venue this morning for each and every one of us. Did God really say? And God's saying, where are you? I'm pretty sure that every single one of us is wrestling in one way or another with these very questions. And the way that we answer these questions will do more than anything else to determine how 2024 pans out for us. Questions are incredibly powerful. That's probably why both God and Satan lead with questions here. So I'd love you just to do something for me, just quickly. Could you get into twos and threes? Uh, you may just need to move to be near somebody. Uh, and just, I want you just to talk together about this. Uh, what's the best question that you were ever asked? Or what's the hardest question you were ever asked? The best or the hardest question? Okay, forgive me. I know shy introverts, you don't like this, but you're just going to have to suck it up. We're going to do it. So uh, quickly, we're just going to take 90 seconds, share best question or hardest question you were ever asked. Go. Okay. Okay, let's, let's take some feedback, shall we? Um, so, so maybe one or two people uh, just call out. Are there the best question or, or the hardest question you were ever asked? Who, who, who wants to go? Yep. Where do you see yourself in this many years' time? Brilliant. Let's have another. Yep. Do you take this woman to be your wife? <laughs> do, you, do you take this woman to be your wife? A brilliant question, and I'm sure you had the right answer. Let's have another one. Yep. What did you do? It's probably like, what did you do? I think we've done that with our dog at times. What did you do? Okay, any other questions? Yeah. What's, oh my goodness, what's the point of you? Why are you here? What's life all about? Amazing. I'm sure we could go on all, 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 all day with this. Questions are so powerful. And of course, in many ways, um, to be human is to ask questions. We are naturally inquisitive. It's what enables us to live with wonder. It's what makes us innovators and explorers and experimenters. And when it comes to God, we tend to think that the power balance is this. I ask the questions and he always has the answer. As if he's some great big kind of know-it-all in the sky. But actually, when you look at the evidence in the scriptures, you seem to find the exact reverse. God seems to be the great inquisitor, the asker of questions. And it may be that when we ask questions, we are at our most godlike. When we ask questions, we're at our most godlike. The only account we have of Jesus' childhood, for example, here he is, age 12. In the temple, and this is what we hear, he is sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. If anyone ever had the right to say, look, I, I've got a few answers for you, it's Jesus Christ. But he's asking 
questions. And then you might think that he did the typical thing that particularly men do. You pass a certain age and you start to think, I have the answer to every question. I just don't know it yet, but trust me, I'm going to get there. But instead, Jesus continues asking questions in adulthood. In fact, it's been calculated that Jesus in the Gospels asked other people 307 questions. That he himself was asked 183 questions and that he only answered three questions. Some of you are like, huh, maybe when God's been not answering my questions, he has form on not answering questions. We might almost say that Jesus is the question to all our answers. Jesus is the question to all our answers. There's such power in asking questions as Sir Isaac Newton said. I find intelligence is better spotted when analysing the questions asked rather than the answers given. Or as the great poet T.S. Eliot says in his poem, The Rock, Oh my soul, be prepared for the coming of the stranger. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. Did God really say? This is the question that Satan asks every generation. It's the question that beats at the dark heart of all cynicism and deconstruction. Did God really say? And Satan's not so stupid as to come in outright and say, God didn't say it, because he knows if he comes up to you and says, everything you believe is nonsense, you're just going to say, get behind me, Satan. What he does is he subtly, surreptitiously begins to sow doubt. Did God really say this is the question that underlies so many of our controversies in the church today. Did God really say, or is truth being redefined in a more enlightened age? It's the question that haunts every person who walks away from a covenant commitment, or deconstructs their faith, or gives up on the church, or doubts their divine destiny. Did God really say maybe you're entering this new year with your own deep silent questions about your future or your faith or your calling or particular promises God has spoken over your life did God really say I have to confess to you that the single most stressful moment of my entire week happens in this building the start of every Sunday service when the children line up on the stage and do action songs and we have to join in. Does anyone else share my pain? And I mean, I just I, I am not equipped to simultaneously sing a melody, enunciate lyrics and do peculiar movements with my hands. I don't, I just don't even begin to understand how you do that, but, the, but these kids are just unbelievable at it. I don't know if they rehearse at home or what it is. And, and a few weeks ago, I, I, what, what I've learned to do, okay, is I just work out who looks most confident 
and I just, I just copy them, just slightly, a split second behind, I copy them. And um, one, a few weeks ago, I, I spotted this kid, he was just unbelievably confident. He was like, just awesome. And he, he, had, he was nailing the action, so I, I'm, I'm copying him, so I'm staring at him, and I'm putting my crown on, and I'm being a lighthouse, and a, a unicorn, or whatever it is you're supposed to be. I'm skipping left, I'm skipping right, and you know, it's, it's all going great, I'm copying him. And then this horrible thing, and he was looking back at me, sort of encouragingly, I thought that I'm, I'm nailing this, and this horrible thing happened, I need to scratch my head, no, no great you know, prophetic significance, I just need to scratch my head. And with horror, I noticed this kid scratch his head, and I realised... <laughs> Oh, he's copying the pastor. I mean, he's, he's not stupid. He's going, if anyone would have nailed this by now, it's the freaking pastor. And, and isn't that a lot like life? We spend our time copying other people, trying not to make complete fools of ourselves, reacting to external stimuli, situational ethics, utilitarian approach to life. And somewhere in the midst of it all, we've lost our moorings in absolute truth. How do we know what's true? How do we know what's real anymore if we're just hormones reacting sociopolitically to external stimuli? Everything is relative in our worlds. And of course, Christians respond to this question, did God really say with conviction? Yes, we believe God speaks. There is truth. There are four particular ways that Christians believe God speaks. And these are worth you being aware of, particularly when you're wrestling with really big questions. And they are as follows. The first way that we know God speaks is through the scriptures, through the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. And this is significant at a time where many people are questioning the Bible's authority. The second way we believe that God speaks is through the voice of Christian tradition and the global church. So we don't just get a random verse from Leviticus and decide that this is, you know, this means that this to me, and and then we end up starting some sect or something. We we like what does Augustine say about this? What you know? What what, what do people in the developing world say about this? We we do our theology. We try to listen to God in the context of the global church, and that is challenging at a time where many people are trying to rewrite Christian orthodoxy, and frankly, are prepared to divide the church over their greater enlightenment. The third way in which God speaks is through the voice of the Spirit today, through the prophetic. This is really important because um, otherwise you can just have your Bible and sort of follow, you know, doctrine. But the Spirit is speaking. Now, the, the Spirit doesn't come in and in any way undermine or, or subvert Scripture he reinforces it, but for example, William Wilberforce could have sat there with his Bible and said, well, look, slavery is all right, as long as you sort of treat them well. But he knew the Spirit of God was calling him to a deeper scriptural truth, which is that all human beings are made in the image of God. And so the Spirit came and helped him to understand something God was saying. This is important at a time when many people in our world are treating prophecies with contempt. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 20. And then the fourth way that God speaks is through the inner voice of our own consciences. A call to holiness. Many are damaging their own consciences, ignoring the whisper of God, which once held them to holiness 
And they now call it repression or shame. You know, the thing with your conscience is very gentle. And that's why the first time it whispers to you, you're deeply troubled. But if you ignore it 10 times and 100 times, you'll shut it down altogether and you won't even feel guilty anymore. That's not a good thing. That's not liberation from shame. That is an incredibly dangerous thing for your soul. Treat your conscience with respect. And as we enter this new year, God, I believe, is calling us to rediscover our confidence in his word. Particularly, I want to suggest, in scripture. It's time for us to return with reverence to the Bible. Yes, God really did say... It doesn't mean there's not the odd bit that we struggle with. I I think in this church we do a pretty good job of wrestling and being honest with the struggles of Scripture. But listen, that's the minority. The majority has been proven true down millennia in almost every culture on earth. Thank God we have the Scriptures. It's time for us to uh, hold on to the historical doctrines of the global church. God really did say... I'm going to think very carefully before I decide I've got a better idea than St. Augustine. It's time for us to pick up old prophecies that God spoke of our lives, promises that God gave us and say, yeah, I'm going to dare to believe God really did say these things to me, even though it might feel safer just to forget them. And it's time for us to resensitize our consciences to holiness. God really is speaking to me about switching off that particular series or not clicking on that link or about conducting that fast or whatever it is. New Year is an important time to refresh our commitment to Bible reading in particular. We all know, I'm sure you're very aware that biblical literacy is declining in Great Britain today. And so I was extremely amused, but not surprised, to uh, read the results of a test done in Caithness, Scotland, among schoolchildren about their biblical knowledge. And I'm just going to read you seven of their responses. The first one is this. One child wrote, in the first book of the Bible, which is called Guinness, Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. I mean, you kind of, you know, there's a sort of a logic in here. Second one, the first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. (laughs) Third, Lot's wife was a pillar of salt during the day. But a ball of fire during the night. (laughs) Four, the seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. (laughs) Five, Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. (laughs) Six, Christians have only one spouse and this is called monotony. (laughs) And my personal favourite, number seven, the Jews were a proud people and throughout history they had trouble with unsympathetic genitals. Are we allowed to do that here? (laughs) Unsympathetic genitals, I'm sorry. Biblical knowledge, I think we can agree, is important. Because it's the primary way that we know what God is saying. It's how we respond to that question. Did God really say, look at Jesus in the wilderness, 
being tempted by Satan, did God really say? And he responds again and again by quoting the scriptures. If Jesus had to engage with temptation that way, how much more do we need to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God? There was a survey in North America of 40,000 people about the correlation between the habit of Bible reading and their own personal well-being and lifestyle. This is a pretty large survey. And what they discovered was extraordinary. First of all, amongst those who read the Bible once or twice a week, so that might just be turning up at church and the preacher saying, open your Bibles, there was a negligible impact on their well-being or lifestyle. Basically, that level of Bible reading wasn't changing anything. Amongst those who read the Bible three times a week, there was some uh, change, not dramatic, but some change in certain areas of well-being and lifestyle. But the extraordinary thing about this survey was what happened amongst those who read the Bible four times a week or more. It was a massive and sudden spike. We don't really know why. And it was a spike in certain particular areas of well-being and lifestyle, as follows. Amongst those who read the Bible four times a week or more, feelings of loneliness were decreased by 30%. Anger issues went down by 32%. Relational bitterness with a partner or with your children went down by 40%. Addictive dependency on anything from alcohol to porn went down 61%. Feelings of spiritual stagnancy and dryness. You know that I'm just going through the wheels, going through the motions. Those went down by 60%. And more positively, uh, the, the, the way those people were sharing their faith and discipling others went through the roof. There's something powerful about reorientating, re-anchoring ourselves in God's truth in Scripture four times a week that will have an impact on the very way you feel, the way you think, and the way that you live. And some of us are like, God, why do I feel spiritually dry? And we're not even opening the Bible four times a week. And so I don't, I don't want to be, I said it would be challenging at the top, start, but this is the time of year to reboot some of those disciplines in our lives. And we live at the time in history when it is easier than it has ever been before to have disciplines in terms of scripture reading right because we, you know we, we've got the bible with us on our phones and whatever all the time there's so many great resources I know many of you use Lectio 365 which is produced by 24 uh, 7 prayer many members of this church are involved with that uh, that's a great free resource or our friends Nikki and Pippa Gumbel do the bible in one year again it's free and loads of people use that you can download that uh, glorify another great app that can help you uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to see that um, Waverley Abbey has, has produced this beautiful new book, which is compiling Selwyn Hughes's best ever every day with Jesus. is one for every day of the year. I, it doesn't matter uh, how you do it, but there are so many resources, Bible reading plans on version. There's very little excuse. Let's anchor ourselves in the scriptures and not spend the year just copying the kid on the stage who thinks he knows what the actions are. 
So the question again and again that Satan will ask you in a hundred different ways is, did God really say? But the question God will ask you again and again in a hundred different ways is this, where are you? Where are you? He walks in the garden in the cool of the evening because Adam and Eve are hiding because shame has come into the world for the first time. And he says, where are you? Satan's heart is cynical and destructive. Did God really say? But God's heart from the very start is personal and relational. Where are you? One of our boys is really into surfing. He is so into surfing that uh, over the Christmas holidays, he wanted to go surfing. And the waves were 10 to 15 foot. It was very cold, very miserable. I can't think of anything worse. And so I drove him down to the ocean and I'm standing there watching this tiny, there's no one else in, surprise, surprise, this tiny little figure uh, surfing. And it's a weird thing, isn't it, that, 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 that you know, when, when they're little, you know, you worry. But when they get older and they're fully grown men, you still worry. And I'm watching and I looked away for maybe a minute, minute and a half at one point, And when I looked back, I couldn't see him anywhere. And I thought, it's okay, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Big waves, one of the waves will go down, I'll spot him. And he didn't appear. And I began to you know, scan left to right. My heart starts going. I then began to pray, oh God, please keep him safe. Where is he? Show me, where is he, where is he? I'm starting to think, do I need to plunge into the water to try and save him? Thanks for laughing at that point, <laughs> darling. Um, you know, I, I'm just terrified. I'm terrified. Uh, and, and then eventually I, I looked and I saw at the far end of the beach he had been swept ashore. He was fine. It was only a minute, minute and a half. But I couldn't help it. That's what a father does when the kid is in trouble. Where are you? And so at this moment in the Garden of Eden, all brokenness and shame has suddenly been sucked into the vacuum of reality by the fall. Every form of danger has suddenly been let loose in the world and God comes and says, where are you? That's the heart of a father towards a child. And we see this in the life of Jesus. He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. Where are you? I leave the 99 to find the one. Where are you? The prodigal is there in another land and the father is looking, waiting for him to return. Where are you? This is the heart of the father from start to end. I love that poem by uh, Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears. And then there's that famous painting that hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral uh, that depicts Jesus, the light of the world, by William Holman Hunt. And uh, there he is, of course, knocking at the door. No handle on the outside of the door. And it's a reference, of course, to Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. And so perhaps the hound of heaven has been pursuing you in many different ways, down the labyrinthine ways of your own thinking. 
Or maybe there has been this perennial knocking at the door of your life and you're realizing he ain't going away. It's not the Amazon delivery man who just chucks the parcel and disappears. He's there. And you think, I might have to open the door. Or maybe you in other ways are aware of this insistent voice speaking into your life. Where are you? I was very moved to read a a blog by a a musician that I follow on Spotify that I like. His name is Andy Squires. In my opinion, his best album was called Cherry Blossoms. Check it out. And uh, he he wrote this blog uh, over the holidays about his own journey of faith. And it goes like this. He says, I thought if I gave my money to God, God would give money to me. I thought that if I prayed for the sick, that they would recover every time. I thought that if I went to church and sang loudly and moved my body just so, I would always feel God's presence. I thought if I declared God's protection over myself and my people, no adversity would come near us. I thought that God wanted me to be successful and wealthy so that I could be a blessing to others. It was my destiny. Somehow I thought that these were God's terms... So I was shocked when he did not fulfill his obligations in these transactions. So I course corrected. I started a new project. I said to hell with all of this. And I withheld my money and I withheld my faith and I withheld my exuberance. And I quit praying for the world to be set right. I closed my mouth. I concluded that only idiots go swimming in the foolishness of praise. I quit expecting miracles. And as a scathing critique and judgment against my misunderstandings of God, I invested heavily in cynicism, skepticism and unbelief. I concluded that the safest and most prudent way forward was to live as a philosophic materialist, eschewing the supernatural and emphasising the rational. On the outside, I remained a Christian, but I traded away the white-hot heat of faith for a dispassionate, dignified and intellectual way. But soon my heart became sad and dry. A new dissatisfaction became apparent The newly wrought sense of freedom that arose within me after escaping my religious naivety soon evaporated. The reaction which I had applied to my initial fundamentalism produced results which proved just as unsatisfactory. I missed being faithful. I missed singing. I missed the simple act of believing. I missed losing myself for the sake of others. The ache of my heart was for Christ himself and I was not being satisfied by the promises made by my own deconstruction. The spirit began chipping away at my hard-heartedness and I realised that in every way I am a child. Every way I am a fool of Christ. For that there is no antidote. And he finishes like this. He says, so I am relegated to suffering the consequences of utter trust in Christ. Isn't that good? See, if you look at the narrative arc of Andy Squire's journey there, it very much began with Satan saying, did God really say? Now, some of that questioning was legitimate because some of the things that Andy had been believing was God's terms weren't. And it, it can be appropriate to question. I'm not for one second saying that we stop asking questions or that we're suspicious of doubt, 
or that we are uh, unduly naive, or that we kiss our brains goodbye to follow Jesus. I'm not saying that. It's a legitimate question, did God really say? But I am saying this, ultimately you have to be able to respond to that question, yes, I know what God is saying, and not just get lost in a world where there are no absolutes. So his journey begins with, did God really say? And it culminates with the hounds of heaven. With the knocking at the door. With the voice of the Father, where are you? Where are you, Andy? I miss you. And he comes home. The most important question of your life is God saying to you, where are you? And you may think that that's straightforward, but it ain't. Psychologists and therapists tell us that our response to trauma and shame is always one of three things. We fight, it's flight, or it's freeze. You went through hard things in 2023. Did you fight? Did you fly away from it? Or did you just freeze? And to all three of those predicaments, God comes with the question, where are you? See, fight, fight. We're entering 2024, some of us with our little fists clenched. We're angry. We are pushing others away and pushing God away. And God says, where are you? Don't push me away. Or maybe your response to trauma and shame is not fight, but it's flight. You're hiding like Adam and Eve. You're running away. Maybe you're fearful and anxious at the start of this new year. And God is saying, where are you? Don't hide from my love. Let's do this together. Or maybe your response to trauma and shame is freeze. It's detachment. It's shutting down. It's losing touch with yourself. It's going numb. And you're entering this year on autopilot, just going through the motions. And to you, God says, where are you? Wake up. Dare to be present and alive to me and to this moment. I confess this is my weakness. You know, from the age of 11, I was being dropped off by my loving family at a boarding school that was toxic and unsafe. And I got a little too good at shutting down my emotions to just cope. And I'm beginning to learn. My wife's helping me to reconnect, to be less intimidated by the question, how are you feeling? Oh, I have no idea. But I'll talk about the Portsmouth football scores with you. And to actually get back in touch, not to be frozen, but connected with reality. And so we're just going to respond now, if that's okay. It'd be great to get the band back up, if that's all right. And uh, we're going to respond to these two questions that I believe echo down the ages and that speak to every single one of us here at the start of this new year. I said at the start that the way we respond to these questions will determine much about the way we live our lives through 2024. I believe that there is a voice asking you, did God really say? It may be that some of us realize that in response to that, we've become a little cynical, our hearts have become a little hard, and the invitation of the Spirit today is to renew, firstly, our trust in Scripture. To dust off, perhaps, some old prophetic words and say, I'm going to dare to believe these again and pray for them. Maybe 
one of your responses might be to seek out people whose very lives demonstrate the veracity of the Word of God. You know those sorts of people. And often they're people who've suffered a great deal, but their lives are somehow authentic and true. I've learned over the years that cynicism is contagious, but so is faith. Get around people who give you faith. Maybe some of us, like Andy Squires, have been deconstructing for a little too long, realizing that if I shoot all my foundations away, everything wobbles and I don't know what's true anymore. And you're realizing at the start of this year, it's time to begin to believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts and not the other way around. Maybe some of us were challenged by that thing I said about conscience and you're aware that in certain specific areas you have got too good at showing down your conscience. Your standards have slipped and you're not even troubled about it anymore. Something deep within you at the start of this year says, God, restore holiness to me. Restore the voice of my conscience. God can restore your conscience. And then there's that other question to which we may want to respond today. God saying to you, where are you? And you realise that in different ways you've been hiding from God's love. Maybe it's simple that you are going to respond by saying, I'm going to resume Bible reading as a habit. I'm going to aim for that four times a week. I'll aim for seven and I'll achieve four. It may be that responding to this today involves making a decision to let someone else into your own struggle and your own questions. To actually talk to someone else about some of the areas in which you realise that you've been hiding. Or it may be that today you've never resolved the fundamental issue of opening the door to Jesus Christ. You're aware that He's knocking at the door. You've sensed the hounds of heaven. You keep bumping into Christians. You're asking you questions. Maybe that's what's brought you to church today. You sense that if there is a God, He doesn't seem so detached as He once did. But in fact, He seems to be saying, where are you? And it's time to respond and saying, okay, this is your lot. I'm here. So I wonder if we could just stand and just take a moment of quiet to reflect, each of us, about these two questions, what they look like in our own lives and how we're going to respond. Thank you, Father, that you scan the earth and indeed you scan a crowd like this here today saying, where are you looking for each one of us, seeking us, longing for us? And Lord, at the start of this new year, we want to commit ourselves to building our days and our weeks and our months upon the absolutes of what you've revealed to be true. And to building 
into our own personal holiness and into our relationship with you, responding, here I am, here I am, here I am. We want to be wholehearted. Lord, you know some of us are fighting. Some of us are hiding. And some of us are just frozen in time. We dare today to say, come Holy Spirit. Draw us close. Amen.